Well, hi everyone, it's Charles here from the GHFC with podcast number 17. And today I'll be sharing with you a recent uh, uh, presentation I made to uh, students at UTS entitled Workplace Toxicity. I'm often asked why, when there is so much emphasis on productivity, profitability, return to shareholders, employee engagement, diversity and inclusivity in the modern workplace, why do I still feel compelled to speak up on behalf of those in the workforce who still suffer at the hands of toxicity? Well, my simple yet candid response is that I can and that I care. I realise now that this was the subconscious reason why my not-for-profit foundation, the Glass Half Full community, was born. In essence, born out of a deep-seated feeling of injustice that hand on heart I really don't want another single employee to have to contend with. So, what is toxicity in the workplace? Well, no doubt you've had the opportunity to study this heinous workplace activity, researching the the latest academic definitions and case studies. I consider myself as one of the latter, however, very doubtful that my story has entered the realms of academia. Now, my story is coming up. However, before then, here is my own definition of workplace toxicity based on my lived-in experience. It is the process of bullying, mobbing, harassment, intimidation and discrimination by one or more others to satisfy their own need to inflict physical or mental abuse and pain on another. As you listen to my story, you'll come to realise that my experience was not so much this, being a a, a blatant physical uh, violence, as this, which is um, a, 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 a stabbing in the back, if you like, a Brutus Caesar moment. Okay, so here is my story as shared in my recent ebook, Ten Years On A Memoir of Workplace Toxicity. The events that follow relate to workplace incidents that occurred in 2010 and 2011. These are events are ex- experienced and documented by me at the time, not reliant on recollection or distortion with the passing of time. Names have not been included, titles only, at my own discretion, not so much for legal reasons, more that there is nothing to be gained by naming and shaming. So let's go into the background. In lead up to 2010, my colleagues and I, being a group of 10 senior sales managers responsible for achieving the sales objectives for the Australia and New Zealand businesses, were increasingly uncomfortable with the leadership traits of our recently appointed head of sales. In short, he was autocratic, non-inclusive, and very often disrespectful of his direct reports. He was also smart and manipulative. My story is made up of the following elements, each illustrating the activities and situations to be aware of when in an environment of workplace toxicity. These are the catalyst, the anxiety, the entrapment, the clarity, business as usual, business unusual, the collusion, the accusations, the recriminations, 
the reckoning, and finally the exoneration. So let's start with the first of those. April 2010, The Catalyst. Out of the blue, our head of sales advised all his senior sales managers, myself included, of the way in which our performance was to be measured from here on in. A senior manager with key performance indicators, which ranked him or her in the bottom three for 2009, and then also ranked them in the bottom three at the close of the first quarter 2010, would receive a poor performance letter, in turn being added to their employee file if you like, a black mark. This same parameter would then apply at the close of each quarter, moving forward, resulting in either improvement or eventual termination. Now, this might sound quite legitimate and rational. However, it was a complete paradigm shift for all the senior sales managers and was totally without precedent. As such, this decree acted as the catalyst for a litany of issues relating to the head of sales coming to the surface, including his lack of inclusion in decision-making, his arrogance in dismissing and disregarding our views, his total lack of respect and support, his manufacturing of workplace situations so as to put a senior manager in an unfavourable light, and his ridiculing of team members in front of others, to list but a few. Mid-May 2010, the anxiety. As a result of this most unsettling experience, I became increasingly anxious and depressed. And although on constant daily medication so as to assist in the management of a previous workplace anxiety condition back in 2004, I found it necessary to recall the strategies for coping with anxiety as, by, as provided by my then psychologist being deep breathing, relaxation exercises and meditation. Late May 2010, the entrapment. At the end of May, I received an email from the head of sales to join him for a chat, which I assumed uh, was convened as a result of our aforementioned concerns. How wrong could I be? Instead, he opened the meeting by advising that it was in regard to bullying, intimidation and harassment claims levelled against me by a fellow colleague. Well, I was totally taken aback, partly by the allegations and partly by the deceptions. So much so that I advised him that I was going to leave the meeting to seek the counsel of the HR office. The head of sales repeatedly and quite aggressively asked me to sit down, stating that he was my boss and if I was told to stay seated, I should. I declined, feeling extremely harassed and intimidated. June 2010, the clarity. Well, at the beginning of June 2010, each senior manager was asked by the head of sales to outline their plans and actions to maximise on the relaunch of the business sales leadership strategy. He responded that my proposals could well be construed by some as lacking in commitment to the task, adding that everyone will be looking to me for some breakthrough thoughts to drive success. Well, I was disappointed and dismayed by this response, especially as not having been briefed to provide a breakthrough plan, although I should have known better, being ambiguity being his uh, constant style. So I reworked my plan, which was undoubtedly breakthrough and expensive, 
which to my complete surprise, he approved. Moving on to July 2010, it was business as usual. Three senior sales managers, including yours truly, were invited to a meeting with the head of sales in the spirit of settling the issues once and for all. In short, to establish a mutually agreeable position so all parties could move on. At the conclusion of the meeting, we all agreed it had been a learning process for all of us and that uh, he would certainly be more aware of the need for him to be more inclusive and uh, involving his team. It was during this meeting that the head of sales remarked that he found my taking of notes to be unhelpful, directing I stop doing so. I ceased to take notes as a sign of good faith. However, I was mystified by his request as we were trained as always to take notes. December 2010, an unusual business In mid-December 2010, we were advised that as part of our restructuring phase, we were to lose three senior managers, two from Australia and one from New Zealand, resulting in reducing our group to seven. Obviously, there was a lot of upset caused by this decision, notably among our group, at which time I began to feel uh, extremely threatened and anxious about my future with the business. Uh, This deep-seated anxiety continued, albeit at a manageable level until the following situation arose. We're now moving to early April 2011, the collusion. In early April, the head of sales came into my office, closed the door behind him, advised that he was thinking of putting in place a sales manager incentive later in the year, with the base being a specific key performance indicator that uh, was being achieved as a result of a current incentive. Now my initial response was that the proposed incentive targets were a bit high, considering the current incentive had already asked a great deal of the team and who already impressively accelerated the growth of this particular KPI. Well, the head of sales didn't agree with my initial concern, instead expressing his own about some of the strategies used by my team in order to achieve said current initiative, intimating but not outlining some form of wrongdoing. Even though neither I nor my team had done anything untoward, his immediate presumption of some wrongdoing was felt by me to be bullying, intimidation and harassment. The next I heard of this was when on my annual leave with my family leading up to Easter, I received an email advising that the head of sales had set up an extraordinary meeting with the sales managers in my division. I contacted his office immediately only to be informed that he would call me back within the hour, which he did, informing me that he was on speakerphone with the Head of Human Resources in attendance, advising that members of my team had engaged in unethical practices. He went on to advise that all my team were to be issued with an amnesty on the Thursday before Good Friday, which, if they signed, would ensure they kept their job. However, this would be considered a first and final warning for them. Failure to sign would result in their termination if breaches had been, or were later, found. Mid-April 2011, the accusations. On my return to the office, I was asked to attend a meeting with the Head of Human Resources, to which I presumed I would be made aware of the current allegations being levelled at my team. 
The Head of Human Resources started the discussions asking, had I at any time been asked by any of my sales managers if an action they were taking was not an appropriate one? I responded that I have an open-door policy for just that purpose, so that they cannot step over the line, even when under pressure. She in turn advised me that the situation has now been reported to the Business Global Compliance Committee, based in the UK, and that I could expect to receive a call from the committee's senior legal counsel. I was then told that we would meet again the following Tuesday after my questioning by the compliance unit at which point I felt extremely bullied, intimidated and harassed. In my defence, I reinforced my consistent standpoint on this issue, adding that in my 23 years with the business, I have always upheld the strongest values of ethics and integrity, as has been supported by every workplace appraisal to date. On returning to my office, I immediately made an appointment with my GP, in turn being referred to a psychologist, after which followed nine consultations, along with the doubling of my current anti-anxiety medication. I was also placed on immediate sick leave, not being in a fit state to return to work until the beginning of August 2011. Just backtrack now to May 2011, uh, the recriminations. As a result of all the above, combined with my associated breakdown, it became abundantly clear that I engaged the services of an independent lawyer in employment and industrial law to ensure this situation was addressed in a formal way in the hope that this toxicity in the workplace could be seen as a real and present danger. In spite of the fact that this engagement of professional legal services would incur financial hardship to my family and I, we felt obliged to do so in the interests of fairness and justice. July 2011, The Reckoning. Fortunately, a combination of my comprehensive diary notes, the very same that the head of sales instructed me to stop taking during one of our meetings, uh, my photographic memory and the diligence of my lawyer, the eventual outcome was that the head of sales resigned his position at the end of July 2011, with the head of human resources resigning soon after. Sadly, it was too late for my dedicated colleagues across Australia and New Zealand. November 2011, the exoneration On the 21st of November, I received an email from our interim head of sales as follows. Dear Charles, as as per your request, I'm attaching the summary of findings from the Global Compliance Committee. This process has been finalised and the overall conclusion is as follows. There was deemed to be no breach of conscious or malicious intent to undertake unethical work uh, work practices on your behalf. Sadly, the the company were unable to officially recognise the part it played in this traumatic turn of events, no doubt in fear of lawsuits and damaged reputations. All they had to do was say sorry. Uh, Is Elton John or was was it Bernie Taupin famously penned? Sorry seems to be the hardest word. Now, in my introduction, I mentioned that uh, I realise now that my experience above was the subconscious reason why my not-for-profit foundation, the Glass Half Full Community, uh, was born. In essence, born out of a deep-seated feeling of injustice, that hand on heart, I really didn't want another single employee to have to contend with. 
If only there was a readily available tool that I could refer to as my workplace mental health well-being reality check. I may well have saved myself the angst and pain of all my anxiety attacks and associated depression. If asked off top of my head, I would have said I loved my job. I really enjoyed my interaction with my colleagues. I felt comfortable with the workplace culture as I did with the leadership of the organisation. However, if I was asked to give a bit more thought to it, my my responses would indicate that I did love my job most of the time. I enjoyed my interaction with most of my colleagues, however, some were really no fun at all. I was comfortable with the workplace culture, uh, at least the way they talked about it, but not definitely not with the way uh, they walked it. And that the organisation leadership was not genuinely respectful and inclusive of its employees, in so much as when doing well, all good. When not doing well, watch out. So hence along came the, the GHFC and uh, the Fulfillment Profiler. Now, I'm not for a minute suggesting the profiler is the answer or the panacea, but it is a simple psychometric tool to provide a selfie of an individual or an organization's current state of workplace mental health well-being. Let me explain. So this all came about in November 2019. The Fulfillment Profiler Uh, primarily came to fruition as a GHFC initiative throughout 2019 based on similar concepts such as the Employee Engagement Survey as a means of determining uh, current datum or benchmark, implementing appropriate strategy to improve or enhance, then over a period of time resubmitting to measure progress and recalibrating as appropriate. An employee's response to each question develops a selfie profile of that individual's preferred workplace fulfillment influence, be that their interaction with their colleagues or clients, their alignment with their workplace culture, the the satisfaction in their their role or job, excluding remuneration, uh, and the inclusivity and respect of their organisation's leadership. For example, I get up each morning motivated to catch up with my colleagues and hear their latest news. Or I get up each morning excited that I work in a place that has a culture of doing the right thing by their staff and their customers. Each participant then has three out of a possible five opportunities to rate their preference as to how often they feel fulfilled alongside each influencer from always to sometimes to never. Uh, The two responses that are not selected are ones that they would seldom or never feel about that fulfillment influencer. So what is a fulfillment profiler? It's a simple, low-cost, yet effective selfie of an employee's level of workplace fulfillment. Individual selfies can then be combined to produce an organization's selfie. The profiler provides interpretations, findings and recommendations and an organisation's current coefficient of workplace fulfilment. And progressive selfies allow for ongoing improvement monitoring. So once again, what are the fulfilment influencer classifications? Well, they are the role or job, uh, not remuneration based, the organisation's leadership, uh, the workplace culture and uh, colleagues, workplace colleagues. 
Uh, and each participant is asked to rank influence of one to four based on the level of importance to them in terms of their workplace fulfillment. One being the most influence, four being the least influence. And then in terms of uh, their happy, comfortable responses, uh, they can indicate that uh, with their role, for instance, they are happy or comfortable, and that could be always. Uh, happy and comfortable most of the time. Happy and comfortable some of the time. Uh, happy and comfortable infrequently. Or happy, comfortable never. So the main purpose of the profiler is to identify just what it is that provides an employee with fulfillment at their place of work. In turn, identifying opportunities for the organization to build on influences of strength while strategizing to enhance influences that are weak. In essence, the more fulfilled its employees are, the better the workplace mental health well-being environment. So 2020 to 2021, bringing us up to date. As we all know, the pandemic hit in February 2020, changing the workspace landscape as we know it. The workplace norm switched from working at work to working from home. And as we emerge from the pandemic, we have to ensure we have learned from this once-in-a-lifetime experience. The profiler, as a psychometric tool, can be used to maximise on these learnings. The question now facing business is, what environment do our employees crave in order to be both fulfilled and productive? Now, following a recent uh, GHFC article, Creating a Safe and Mentally Healthy Environment for Workers During COVID, uh, published in Sourceable.net in September this year, I was in the midst of processing a few individual profiler submissions when it hit home that the GHFC really should offer a, a post-COVID version of the profiler to the construction sector at no cost to them uh, being sponsored by the GHFC, representing a one-time opportunity to receive feedback from their employees as to the overall perception of the level of their current workplace mental health well-being. A selfie if you will. This launch, uh, the launch, sorry, of this opportunity has been supported by uh, Sourceable Net, Gotcha for Life and Mates, Mates in Construction, all being major players in raising awareness of mental health issues and promoting mental fitness. So the way ahead, you know, we, we can choose to ignore workplace toxicity, you know, bullying, mobbing, harassment, intimidation and discrimination, or we can join together just as we do when something is not right or just in our local community, reinforcing acceptable and unacceptable behaviours, in turn protecting all our inherent human rights. It's always hard, but then again, anything worth fighting for is. Now, I hope that the experiences I have shared provide an insight to ongoing situations that are not acceptable anywhere in the modern workplace. Employers do have a duty of care for employees' health and well-being whilst at work, both legally and ethically. Remember, your employee has a legal responsibility under occupational health and safety and anti-discrimination laws to provide a safe workplace. Uh, Section 4 of the Disability Discrimination Act of 1992 defines disability as total or partial loss uh, 
of the person's bodily or mental functions and includes a disability that presently exists. In June 2021, we saw the release of ISO 45003 in Australia, a world-first international standard for managing psychosocial risk in the workplace and is now incorporated into the broader family of ISO 45000 Occupational Health and Safety Management System Guidance. So an employer that allows toxicity to occur in the workplace is not meeting their legal or ethical responsibilities. And remember, support is available from the Fair Work Ombudsman, the, the Human Rights Commission, and such wonderful organisations as Mates in Construction, Black Dog Institute, Beyond Blue, A Gotcha for Life, Are You OK? and Lifeline. Well, once again, I, I hope you gained some insights and added value from this GHFC podcast and with many thanks for listening in. In the meantime, stay mentally well. All the very best. Charles at the GHFC.